welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. It has been said before, but it's worth repeating. Health inequities in the U.S. did not start with the pandemic, but COVID-19 has certainly exacerbated them. Black people and other people of color, indigenous, immigrant, and low-income communities have all suffered and died at disproportionately high rates. A few months into the pandemic, you heard some healthcare experts saying that the so-called underlying health conditions like diabetes or hypertension or cardiovascular disease were what made COVID-19 more dangerous for these communities. What made 2020 a watershed moment was that we heard more people like our next guest pushing back on what felt like victim blaming to call for a deeper analysis and drastic change. As our guest said in a recent Los Angeles Times op-ed, reducing health inequities requires fixing the structures that perpetuate them. Dr. Elaine Batchelor is the chief executive officer of MLK Community Healthcare, an amazing safety net institution, a hospital in Los Angeles. Elaine sees every day how the current healthcare system is failing us and has some thoughts based on her experience about what needs to change. Dr. Bachelor, welcome to Turn On The Lights. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Elaine, let's start the conversation, if you will, by telling us a little bit about yourself and about the institution that you lead, MLK Community Health. Sure. I am a physician. I'm a board-certified rheumatologist internist who has given up taking care of individual patients in exchange for trying to improve health for larger communities and populations. And the population that I care for now is located in South Los Angeles and encompasses the communities of Watts and Compton. And it's where I run a hospital and health that takes care of a predominantly low-income black and brown community that is largely dependent on Medicaid and to a large and to a smaller extent. So that kind of gives you a picture of who we are. Can I just ask, why did you make the switch from doctor to executive? Whatever possessed you to do that? I don't think I actually really made a switch. I think that my entire career has really been shaped in that way. And it's really because of how I viewed medicine as a vocation. So I initially became interested in medicine, and this may sound weird or silly, but I initially became interested in medicine after reading a book called Dear and Glorious Physician. And it was a book that is this big, thick book that describes the life and career of St. Luke, who was a physician. And what I liked about what I read was that this was a person whose career was about healing individuals, expanding the base of scientific knowledge, and being a social reformer, addressing the social conditions that contribute to poor health. And so that's really what sparked my interest in medicine. And it's sort of the model I always had of what a doctor should be. And even when I was in college, I was really interested in the history of medicine and the history of our healthcare system and how did we get to where we are and why is it the way it is. And even as a resident and a fellow, I did my training at a county hospital that took care of a low-income minority population, I was always really interested in 
the way that our system was set up and how it was structured and what are the outcomes that we're getting. So I was always interested in that. And so I think I just eventually aligned my career with that interest, that larger interest in helping populations, helping communities, and helping to change how we organize and deliver. Elaine, tell us a little bit about the community that surrounds MLK Community Health. And you mentioned Compton Watts, that's the neighborhoods that that the institution's in. Give us a bit more of a flavor of kind of what you see as you come into the hospital every day. Sure. So this is a community that is probably best known for the Watts riots of 1965, which is when these huge riots broke out in this community. It's a community that over time became a community of concentrated poverty and where a lot of minorities live because Los Angeles used to have housing covenants and redlining. And about 95% of the area was off limits to minorities. They couldn't live there. So there were a few places where they could live. That's where they moved to. And over time, these communities evolved as places that lacked a lot of the services and amenities that other communities have, that didn't have good schools, that didn't have good employment opportunities, that had difficult relations between residents and the police, and that did not have access to health care. And after the Watts riots in 1965, the governor of California at the time was Jerry Brown's father. He put together a group of people to investigate the root cause of the riots and to write a report about it and to make recommendations for what could be done to address those root causes. They wrote a report called the McCone Commission Report. You can still go online and find it. And it made a lot of recommendations, a lot of which were never carried out. But one of the recommendations it made was that the county should build and operate a hospital so that the residents would have access to some health care. The county did that. And in 1972, King Drew Hospital was opened. It was a 400-plus bed trauma center. Unfortunately, over time, the hospital deteriorated. There weren't enough good doctors. The culture at the hospital wasn't aligned with high quality and patient safety. And eventually the hospital closed. So in 2007, it closed. The community was left without health care at that point. Yes. And one of the interesting things is that one of the accelerators for the hospital being closed was a series of articles that was written about the hospital by a reporter at the LA Times. That reporter won a Pulitzer Prize. But the community lost their hospital and they didn't have a hospital for about seven years. My hospital is the result of community leaders and elected officials getting together and saying, we need to bring healthcare back to this community, but it needs to look different from the prior hospital. So we reopened a hospital in this community. It is still a safety net hospital, but it's privately operated and it is supported by a public-private partnership. Elaine, you said something there, which I want to draw out here, but you mentioned the safety net. Can you say a little bit more about the safety net? What is the safety net? How's it function or not in some cases? And uh, can you just elaborate a little bit on what the safety net is for folks? Sure. This conversation is a little bit like the conversation I have with all of my new employees when we do new employee orientation. So we refer to safety net providers, and these can be hospitals, they can be outpatient providers, as that 
are created and operated to, to serve a low-income population or community. Many times the low-income communities that safety net providers serve don't have the same type of insurance that everyone else has. Usually they don't have commercial insurance. They have what we call public insurance, meaning it's insurance that's paid for by the government, usually Medicaid, which is the government-sponsored insurance program for poor people. But it is different from Medicare in that it is designed by each state and is a little different in each state. And safety net providers usually see a lot of low-income patients who either don't have insurance or have Medicaid insurance. Elena, can I just go back? You used the term redlining before. I know we're going to be talking more about the kind of community you're helping. Most of our participants have heard the term before. Just to make sure, though, can you tell us a little more about redlining as a foundational issue? Sure. I will do my best. I must admit I'm not, I'm not the expert on redlining, but I'll do my best. It's a practice that was really developed by the government when the government began providing mortgage insurance for people buying homes and designated certain communities as places where this insurance would not be available so that people who wanted to buy houses in those areas would have difficulty and where it would cost more for them to buy a house. And the areas that were quote unquote redlined were usually areas that were places where minorities live, specifically African-Americans. So it means that they were locked out of the housing market. And so the communities you serve, like Watson Compton, these among the historically redlined communities back as a structural problem for their development. Yes. And it goes along with the other piece of housing discrimination, housing covenants, which are agreements that communities make or used to make that they would not allow certain ethnic and racial groups to purchase houses in their communities. And they enforce those covenants. Elaine, one of the things that we, we've had conversations about this in the past, but I, I'm very curious about how this plays out. So this dynamic exists, this his, historical redlining. You get this the report that's written that results in the need for a hospital. The hospital actually suffers. Despite the community winning a hospital, there's a considerable amount of, as you described, the doctors or there are not a lot of them that come to the hospital. There's a quality and safety suffer. The hospital eventually closes, but it reopens. But even now, today, I know there are still struggles around how to provide high-quality care to patients in the community that MLK, that the institution experiences. There was a recent story that you shared with me about one such patient. I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about a patient here and how the effects of all of this and this under-resourcing of the safety net ends up playing out in the life of an individual, a patient that's in your care. Sure. So I can start with the story about the patient and then I can try to explain what, why, what was happening to this patient was happening. So we had a 49 year old man who came to our hospital through our emergency department and was admitted to the hospital for what turned out to be a serious infection in his heart valve. And it's a condition that we call bacterial endocarditis. It's a very complicated medical problem. That ha- that if a person doesn't receive appropriate treatment, has a usual course that involves lots of complications and eventual death. So we knew what this patient needed. We know that he needed supportive care and that he needed antibiotics. 
But we also know that he needed surgery to prevent the accumulation of these complications and eventually death. Surgery he needed was a sophisticated heart valve surgery. He had an infection in a prosthetic valve. And he had the patient was covered for his insurance by the Medicaid program. Unfortunately, hospitals lose money when they take care of patients whose insurance is Medi-Cal. That's what we call it in California, but that's the name of our Medicaid program. How does that work, Elaine? So why would a hospital lose money on a patient that has Medi-Cal or Medicaid coverage in California? Sure. So this is one of the unfortunate and serious structural inequities that is baked into our healthcare system. And it explains why so many low-income and minority communities are not getting the healthcare they need. And that is that in California, the Medi-Cal program pays providers pennies on the dollar compared to what commercial insurance and Medicare pay. So just to give you an example, if a patient comes to our emergency department, we might get paid on average $2,000 by commercial insurance, $650 by Medicare, and $225 by Medi-Cal. So a tenth of what you get for Blue Cross or for United or some other commercial insurance. So, and what's the cost, Elaine, on average, what's the cost of providing care for that patient? So you've got a patient that's you're getting 220 bucks for, but what's it cost you to provide care for that? It's more than $225. And that is the, that's part of the problem is that what Medicaid pays does not cover the cost of providing healthcare to patients. So there's this whole complicated system of supplements for hospitals that provide disproportionate amount of Medicaid care. But most hospitals have to make do with whatever Medicaid pays. Unfortunately, providers working in the community, so doctors working in a practice in the community, also don't get any supplements. So they have to take whatever Medicaid pays, and they're very low amounts compared to what commercial and Medicare pay. So what most hospitals do is they cover their costs by subsidizing low payments through Medicare and Medicaid with higher payments through commercial insurance. But if you don't have a mix of those different types of insurance, then you won't be able to make those cross-subsidies work. So if we're trying to transfer a patient like this from our small community hospital to a tertiary medical center that does provide sophisticated heart surgery, And we call up these hospitals in our community and we tell them we have this patient who needs this procedure and we ask for them to accept this patient. The first question they ask us is, what kind of insurance does your patient have? And as soon as they find out that the patient has Medicaid, they usually, they almost always say, I'm sorry, we don't have a bed. Occasionally, they will actually tell us what's really going on behind the scenes, which is that this is not a type of insurance that we want to accept at our hospital. We know that we're going to lose money on this patient, so we will not take this patient and take care of this patient. So this individual who had a treatable medical condition, but treatment that required a hospital that had more a bigger scope of services, stayed in our hospital for almost 30 days Every day we called like 15 to 20 hospitals asking if they would accept this patient. Every day they would say 
He eventually, the infection spread to his brain, his eyes, his kidneys. He, his kidneys shut down. He had strokes. He was proceeding along the expected terrible course of this disease if you don't provide the appropriate intervention. And finally, at the end, almost 30 days, I called the CEO of another hospital. Our doctors talked to the doctors there. We called several times. We actually have an agreement with this particular hospital that they will accept some of our transfers. And when initially when we contacted them, they said, sorry, we can't take him because of his insurance. But eventually we were able to convince them to accept this patient and he was transferred. But by then he'd already accumulated all of the complications that could have been prevented with timely care. Elaine, the hospitals that you're trying to get the patient transferred to, are they for-profit hospitals or are they not-for-profit hospitals? Are they supposed to be places where they've got community obligations or not? Most hospitals are not-for-profit. So most hospitals do have an obligation to provide community benefit in exchange for their tax exemption. But we get the same response from hospitals, regardless of whether they are not-for-profit or for-profit. I had another patient just this weekend, a 42-year-old who was having a, was bleeding from her gastrointestinal tract and needed a fairly routine procedure to make the bleeding stop, an interventional radiology procedure that, again, required a transfer to a different hospital. And the not-for-profit hospital down the street initially agreed to take the patient. But when the hospital found out that the patient had Medicaid, canceled the transfer. And interestingly enough, we were able to get the patient transferred to a hospital 20 miles away that happened to be a for-profit hospital with a CEO who's a physician who responded to an appeal to take care of this patient. Okay, so you got my blood boiling here. And this is what my team is engaged in every day is okay, so trying to get these patients the care they need in a system that has made them third-class citizens. And so, Okay, okay. So how did we get into this mess? I mean, go ahead, be whatever level you want, political scientists. <laughs> well, we got into this mess because, it's it, number one, we are ambivalent about taking care of poor people. And we don't necessarily believe that poor people have a right to health care and that they, that they have a right to the same quality and access of health care that everyone else has, which I think is very short-sighted. We got into this mess because of the history of slavery and racism and states that are unwilling to invest in taking care of their communities, partly because Many of the poor people who live in their communities are people of color, and we maintain this system for those reasons. And because we don't have enough imagination and will to change the situation, even people that I work with every day, people, our colleagues, don't have enough imagination and will to press for these changes. This is, sounds like redlining in a, in a new disguise. It's medical uh, apartheid. It is. It is. I call it. We the same thing. I agree. It no. is medical apartheid. I call it separate and unequal. That's what I call it. Separate and unequal. And oh. it is a reflection of the values and the prejudices and biases of our society. All right. So let, one question back to you, Kate. But so let's say I want to go to this. Let's say the CEO or the board of the hospital did not take your patient. 
and let's make it a, a not-for-profit hospital. Nope. Let's look at their yeah, mission statement. like that too. <laughs> mission statement probably says we want health in communities, we're for justice and equity. I'm sure that it's a great mission statement. And let's go out for a bit with a CEO. So absolute confidentiality. Everyone lets their hair down and you say to the CEO, this guy's going to die unless you take him and you say no. What in his or her heart, what's their response? What are they going to say to that? Well, they're going to say a number of things. They're going to say their job is to do the right thing for their own institution and their own community. And taking my patient is going to undermine their financial success and availability of resources to take care of their community and their patients. They're going to say that the system is broken and it's not their responsibility to compensate for a broken they're going to, sometimes they're going to blame the doctors. I've had hospital CEOs do exactly that and tell me, well, I'd be willing to take care of your patient, but the doctors aren't willing to accept the low payments that Medicaid provides. And it's, it's an open secret too, because you don't even have to give people a beer. You can go to meetings and people will openly discuss the fact that the financial incentives are set up so that they don't want to do these things. They want to admit patients to their hospital who come with good insurance and can keep their hospital financially well off. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, this is the payer mix notion. If you've ever heard that terminology, I mean, that's something that people talk about openly. You're right. It's not hidden. It's not behind closed doors and it's very much out there. Elaine, is this a, I mean, Compton, Watts, Los Angeles, California problem, or is this a national problem? What's your sense of this? Is this something that's- It's both. It's both. I think that Compton, South LA, Watts is an example of a community of concentrated poverty and a predominantly black and brown community in a state where Medicaid provider rates are very low. We've been described as the Mississippi of the West. And it is every state's Medicaid program is a little different, but there are plenty of other states that have the same problem. And in general, Medicaid doesn't have parity in terms of what it pays providers with Medicare or commercial insurance at a national level. But it does vary from state to state. And in California, the state has decided to invest more public dollars in expanding Medicaid coverage to more people. And they've done a good job of that. And in fact, we're now expanding Medicaid coverage to the last sort of cohort of low-income, uninsured people who are not documented and expanding coverage of services. So, for example, now in California, if you're a pregnant woman, you can get a doula through Medicaid, but the state has not touched the provider payment so you now have a system that is really an illusory system. You theoretically have coverage, but you don't have access because there aren't enough doctors willing to accept these payments or hospitals willing to accept these payments. You have poor quality care. You might have access to, to nothing. <laughs> well, you, 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 the you might have access to a doula, but you don't have access to a midwife or an obstetrician. Right. So, so, so wait a minute. So, so we both read the same research and stuff. What if I push back and say, Elaine, you've got the, you're calling the wrong shots here. It's more money for hospitals, higher Medicaid payment. That's going to solve the problem of Watson, 
I'm wants. not arguing for more money for hospitals. I, I run a hospital, but I also run a healthcare system that includes doctors and community care and programs, out, outpatient programs. I can get paid adequately to amputate a limb on a Medicaid patient. I can't get paid adequately to provide disease management and prevention to that same patient so that patient doesn't end up in the hospital. That's what I'm staunchly advocating for is to do a better job of providing resources for community-based care, for behavioral health services. I think that hospitals have done better than other types of providers in getting their piece of the pie, so to speak. You know, they may not have, uh, may, I don't think, know that they're doing quite as well as the pharmaceutical industry, but they're getting pretty good piece of the pie. Even hospitals that, that are safety net hospitals that aren't doing as well as, as more affluent hospitals. But I think where we are seriously falling down is in funding for community-based care. But what, what about what people call social determinants of care? Even community-based care, does that address problems of food security or violence in the streets or, or you know, housing security? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And obviously those things do contribute to health. And I do think that as healthcare providers, we can facilitate some of that. But I, I want to tell you that lack of access to good healthcare and to an appropriate scope of healthcare is a social determinant of health. And I am not an expert on housing, but I can tell you I'm an expert on healthcare. And I know that the way that we've structured our healthcare system, and let's take our health education system. Doctors who graduate from medical school seriously in debt, they're not going to go to work in a community that primarily relies on Medicaid and its low reimbursement rates. They can't sustain a practice and they can't support a family on those rates. So I think there's plenty of work for us to do in reforming our healthcare financing and delivery system. Elaine, what do you think about how do we see our way through this now? So you've chronicled the challenge here very clearly. It's pretty systemic. It's pretty big. Where are you finding ideas for change here? Where do you think we should be looking for solutioning here? And how are you thinking about pulling the system through? Sure. So our healthcare system is striving to provide a model for how to provide high quality, safe care in a low-income community of color and to provide that care both in the hospital and in the community. And I think it starts with the imagination, the vision, and the commitment to do that. And that might sound a little weird, but I think far too often the people that work within our healthcare safety net simply accept the fact that the care is not going to be as good not going to be as accessible. It's not going to be as safe. It's not going to be as high quality. Well, I think the first thing you have to do is say, I don't accept that. My goal is to provide care that's just as good as the care that everyone else. Um, that's our goal. That's what we started out with. We have this unique public-private partnership. We hire talented people. We are innovative. We're creative problem solvers. And we are very engaged in policy advocacy because we know that the current structure of healthcare funding and the issues that we talked about before are serious barriers and that we need to get past those barriers 
in order to have a healthcare system that really is equitable and that can provide quality care for everyone. So we tell our story. We talk to the media. We want to shine a light on the things that are happening in communities like ours that most people have no idea are happening. And certainly our policymakers are not in tune with. So we share stories. We write articles. We host site visits. We draft legislation. We engage community members in helping get those pieces of legislation passed. We do all of those things. What would you say if you're talking to a your public, your community itself, what are you inviting them how to do? What action are you inviting them to join you in at this time to help advocate for better care in your community? Well, I think there are a couple of things, I think, and pretty consistent with what I just said. I think the first is that people need to hear their stories. People need to know what they're experiencing. People need to understand what the barriers are that they're encountering. So you know, we need to hear their voices. We need to know what their experiences are. And then when there are solutions being proposed that would help to make things better, we need their support in convincing our legislators and our policymakers to implement those solutions. So I think those are a couple of things that are pretty key. I like the phrase political determinants of health. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Elena, it's a hard job you have. What keeps you going? How are you able to do this? It sounds like oh, you're- I love my job. I come to work every day knowing that I am making a difference and energized by the endless possibilities to make my piece of the world better. I love it because I love the people that I work with and I love coming to work and figuring out how to solve problems and how to make things better. And I've always kind of liked the macro more than the micro. So that's a part of it, I think. So, okay, if he put you in charge of Congress and the administration at the federal level, describe the changes you'd like to make starting now that would start to heal your community and the problems you're describing. Well, I think fortunately, we're starting to see some traction on some of these problems. I think that the person who is currently in charge of the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, which is our federal agency that oversees Medicaid and Medicare policy, is a woman of color who is seriously committed to making changes that can support better health care for all of, all of our country and all of us. And I think we're starting to see some progress. At a macro level, I think we need to make sure that everyone has insurance coverage and that everyone has access to quality health care. And we should spend our public dollars on those public goods. And I think those, personally, I find that more compelling than spending the money to build more bombs or build up a bigger free budget or put more people in prison. I think that as a society, we're pretty wealthy. It's really a matter of how we choose to allocate our resources. So I would be allocating our resources to these social goods rather than to some of these other things. And I would elevate the Medicaid program so we had parity with Medicare and commercial insurance. In fact, I really believe that we would be better off if we had something that looked more like a single-payer system. Elaine, I have one last question here about this. I, there's a lot right now in, the, in the, the newspapers about the healthcare workforce being challenged, tired, exhausted, burned out. They're getting to do something, your colleagues, your doctors, your nurses, your staff are getting to do something pretty incredible in, in your environment. I always wondered whether or not the ability to do the right thing, as you're 
doing is actually helps to alleviate the risk of burnout. I mean, is your, how's your staff feeling right now when they have to fight that battle, on the other hand, for 30 days, watching someone in front of them deteriorate like that when they could just be getting, not getting the care that they absolutely need? How's the staff register all this? How are they experiencing this? I think in general, working in a community like our community is a pretty uplifting experience. I think that my staff experience it similar to the way I experience it, which is they come to work every day knowing that they are helping people who need them and really feeling dedicated to that and energized by that. Certainly watching a patient deteriorate or even die because they're not getting the care they need with a dysfunctional system is very demoralizing. And it upsets our staff. It makes them angry. It makes them sad. But it doesn't make them want to give up. It doesn't make me want to give up. It makes me even more determined to solve problems and to change the way that we're doing things in our society. I keep this book in my office that's called The Children. It's a book by David Halberstam, and it's about the young people who were part of the civil rights movement. These were kids, basically, who had graduated from high school, who were in college, who were drafted into the movement, and then they went out and sat in at restaurants and they got on buses and went to the deep south and registered people to vote. And they basically were risking their life, their well-being, their education to do these things. And they had the courage to do it. They didn't simply say, well, things will never change. They had no way of knowing whether things would change or not, but they did it because the status quo was unacceptable and they had the courage to engage in that struggle. Now, no one's asking me to put my life on the line. All I'm being asked to do is acknowledge that the status quo is not acceptable and then come to work every day trying to change it. And I think that's what motivates and energizes our staff from the every single person who works in my system knows that they are taking care of a community that really needs their help. And they take that seriously. And that's why they want to come to work every day, even when things are difficult. It's very inspiring to listen to you, I must say, Elaine. And thank you for what you're doing. I have a sort of weird question. So the image of the American sort of healthcare industrial complex right now is not a very favorable one. Large corporations charging high prices, bills attending to finance first, the executives who seem very focused on their own local interests and not necessarily people getting left out. You sound different. Are you, are you alone in this or is there a community of healthcare leaders, executives that you're part of, you feel part of that is actually oriented toward the kind of changes that you're just describing? Is this, That's is a this great a- question. I hope I'm not alone. I think that you are part of my community. So I think you and Kate are a part of my community. So I don't feel that I'm absolutely alone, but I do feel like I'm a bit of an outlier. I was reading an article the other day that said the majority of hospital boards are populated by people in finance and non-healthcare business. And I just find that appalling. My hospital is so different. Our board of directors are all people who have experience and expertise in healthcare, running healthcare organizations or providers or people who know about healthcare quality. They're not 
finance people or business people. And I do believe that there is a mission to this work that needs to be at the heart of it. And I do feel that there is a small community of people who feel the way we do. But I will tell you, Don, that a lot of the time, I feel like my colleagues regard people like me as hopelessly naive and out of touch with reality and daydreaming about things that are not possible. Yeah. Listening to you, I wonder exactly who is out of touch with the reality. I think the article you said said of for 15 large, I think I believe they were academic medical centers, only 15% of all of the board members were clinicians of any type who'd actually had experience with patients. The rest, as you said, are financiers, real estate agents, moguls who probably have something to contribute, but the intelligence you're talking about may not be in that room. I believe that governance really matters. And I strongly believe that uh, a healthcare organization needs governance that knows about healthcare. And I hope that my board will never end up like that. Well, full disclosure, I'm on Elaine's board. So it's it's a real joy to be part of that conversation as well. It's an amazing community. And Elaine, you've got, I think, two natural allies here on the line with Don and I to join you in the outliers, perhaps, whatever that might be. We like to ask at the end of these conversations, one last question, it's a habit of ours, and it's really about optimism or pessimism. You've got a lot of headwinds facing you every day, and yet I can sense the spirit and the courage and the, and the love for your work, frankly. But where are you on the optimism to pessimism scale? What do you see as our future here? Are you optimistic? or Well, pessimistic? I am just a naturally optimistic person. So that I think just by nature, I'm an optimist. I always think the glass is half full, and I focus on what we can do to make things better. So I remain optimistic and I identify signs of progress and of more people starting to ask the right questions and move the system in the right way. So I am optimistic. I'm not sure how long it will take, but I do believe that it's going to get better over time. Well, thank you so much, Elaine, for joining us here on Turn On The Lights. I think you've shed a lot of light on a number of things that people need to learn a lot more about. And please count us again among your allies and friends. Thank you. Okay. Time. You know, I would tell you one other thing that makes me optimistic is the young people that are coming up behind us who are very energized and focused on solving problems and making the world a better place. People like my sons. I'm to have an example like you to follow uses that number substantially only and thank you so much you're welcome another tour de force don said uh, elaine just a, a breath of fresh air my goodness what she's dealing with is enormous but what she's doing it she's doing it with courage optimism love perhaps even it just uh she's quite a remarkable person yeah i courage 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 you know she's willing to break the molds and try to do something really new and on behalf of people that really need champions. The fact that I'm reflecting on her as being exceptional is perhaps part of the part of the problem, though. I think it's so easy to describe Elaine as being a hero. She is, to be clear. Um, but it also feels like that's part of the, the challenge that we have ahead of us, isn't it? Because she's just uh, unfortunately, too rare. You asked her that question directly. In the, in yeah, the I, I expected a different answer. I expected her to say, oh, there's, you know, we have we have 5,000 hospitals in this country. I would have expected her to say there are hundreds of us out there that are trying to meet needs that can't be met without fundamental change. 
And so I'm part of a large community trying to get these changes. That is not what she said. No, not at she, all. She said, we're her partners. <laughs> it's a little scary. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, we haven't apparently generated the political momentum to actually force this change, and it isn't going to come from within. Uh, that, that, I think, is more and more something I'm concerned. She talked about the next generation, which is often, I mean, it's so often used, it's almost a, you know, a trope on some level, but uh, we talk about the next generation coming up. Although I think she's right about this. There's a certain amount of mobilization. The tools of activism seem more at the fingertips of doctors and nurses than they were during my time in training. I, I, I didn't know anything about that stuff when I was coming up in medicine. And, and now it feels like there are people out there that have people that have been on the show, like Alistair Martin, who have uh, talked about mobilizing and organizing and, and yes. getting other doctors and nurses and into, into that. It, it, there have to be enough of them. I mean, and it's a, it's, I'm afraid it's a horse race because I'm getting emails even just recently from too many doctors and nurses who are saying, I'm done. I can't deal with this incessant focus on finance and money, the, uh, the productivity pressures, the, 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 you know, what I thought I was here to do, which is to produce healing, isn't, doesn't seem to be on the, the hit list of the people in control of this system. Now, maybe that's naive, but I agree with you. I also meet many young clinicians and, and executives who say, we have to make a change, but there's going to have to be something that catalyzes collective action on this because the status quo is really powerful. And also just to make sure we've said it out loud, uh, she began with redlining and and the racist histories that have generated a Watts and a Compton, the troubles in Watts and Compton largely, and or manifest there. And, you know, as long as we aren't evincing a sense of solidarity, we can't solve this. When she says the, you know, the, the hospital that won't take the patient says, well, I'm solving my problem for my community. The rest of that sentence is, and your community is not my community. That's a fragmentation and a and an absolute guarantee of worsening inequity. Medical redlining is the same thing, right? It, it was, is. It, it, is. it really is embedded in the culture. And I'm sure these people, they won't take the referral. You got to say they're not bad people, of course. These are, these are our friends and they're people who are, um, uh, who are in their hearts, I think, good for sure. But they're in a context which makes it, quote, naive to act like Elaine Patchelor acts. Uh, that's, that's, that's a bad a bad fact, and, and it does need to change. I, I'm also, I mean, I remember I was uh, administrator of CMS. I ran Medicare and Medicaid under the, the Obama administration for 17 months. And, you know, she may be right about Medicaid. The, the, you know, the, the uh, Medicaid rates are low. Sometimes in my dreams, I think, well, I'm either high enough to make it, you know, thoughts was well run, but she's making a pretty compelling case that there has to be an adjustment, a resetting of uh, Medicaid payment. That money, of course, has to come from somewhere. Uh, but it, we may have tightened that screw much too tight. Yeah. I noticed, by the way, she's not talking about Medicaid payments at, to hospitals. She's talking right. about Medicaid yeah. payments to health systems. So I she thought that was upstream. interesting. Yeah, that yeah. was a very interesting part of the conversation because she wasn't saying we need more money in our in our inpatient acute care treatment facilities. She was saying that we need more or better Medicaid payment in the community more broadly creating conditions that would encourage pe people to get better chronic disease management in the community so that they could prevent even getting into the hospital in the first place, you know, and, uh, on some level. And then applying the same logic to social determinants of health, it seems, seems logical. You know, I hope uh, one of the functions of our podcast, Turn on the Lights, is to begin to unpack this story about the, the payment. It is really complicated. And even that simple idea that the money needs to flow 
more toward uh, community-based efforts that can keep that person from getting endocarditis, that can keep that hypertensive person from getting a stroke. We, we should we should try to offer our listeners a, a better understanding of just what that looks like inside that black box. Uh, yeah. Right now, it's it's not set up that way. And she, working in one of the wealthiest cities in one of the wealthiest states in one of the wealthiest countries, and yet struggling um, in this way, it's just a it's a it's a it's a you know canary in a coal mine or, or something along those lines about the future here. This is a this is a pretty stark story of need and uh, what we need to do differently. I think in the future. But I think it's both an embarrassment kind of ethically, but it's also really stupid economic policy because all of these downstream effects that she's describing as for that patient with the endocarditis, they raise costs. And that that money comes right out of the pockets of taxpayers and businesses eventually one way or the other. So right. we're, we're really flushing money down the drain by not attending to the equity issues that she's talking about. Absolutely. Well, Don, it was great to talk to Elaine. Great to speak to you about these issues and we'll keep unpacking them and exploring them on Turn On The Lights. Till next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Turn On The Lights where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at ihi.org. Thank you.